this morning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And, and I want to remind you of the big premise of what we're doing here before we dive into it. We're saying it this way. The big theme of this Revelation study is that the future that you see shapes the life that you live, whether you're someone who's a follower of Jesus, whether you're someone who's just kind of checking it out, this is a truth, this is a reality of life, that the future you see shapes the life that you live. Uh, you know, I heard an interesting quote from Henry Ford this week that said, you know, if, if you believe that you can do it, or if you don't believe you can do it, you're right, right? <laughs> There's something about this sort of thing about what, what do I see in the future? What what does it hold? And when you see into the future, it should change how you live today. It has an impact. It has an influence. And so every week in this series, we're, we're asking questions of the text as we go through the text. Now, here's the question today, and this one is a, is a very, very common question that I hear, and it goes like this. Why do some people go to heaven when others don't? Why do some people go to heaven when others don't. Now, this may seem, you know, if you've been in church for a while, you may think, I, I know the answer to this. I, I hope you do. But this is a very common question. See, the Bible presents it this way, that there is a place called heaven, and it is where God dwells. And there are some people who go to heaven, and there are some people who do not. Now, it, it, that, if that is true, and that's what the Bible says is true, I believe it's true, right? If that's true, then why is it that some go to heaven and some don't? I mean, it's a pretty important question, right? If heaven does exist and God is there and it's going to be for all of eternity, then don't you want to be there? But why do some people go and, and others don't? Well, here's the good news. You can know for sure today. You can know for sure today. In fact, by the end of this talk, uh, we're going to be looking at this question and answering it so that you can know for sure before you walk out of those doors, are you going to be in heaven? See, because there's a lot of misconceptions about this. And, and here's the main misconception. It's the myth of good enough. See, this is the myth of good enough. As a pastor, I do um, lots of funerals weddings, baby blessings, you're kind of with people at highs and lows at all different points of life, you know? And, and the funeral, I, I've just noticed this trend to be true. Maybe you've noticed it as well. You will never be as good and glowing of an individual as you will at your funeral. I mean, it, you will be the greatest person that humanity has ever produced. You will be the most loving husband or wife. You'll be the greatest parent, you know, the best friend, coworker, whatever, right? There's this, we have this need. Like, I would love at a funeral for someone to be honest and be like, there were peaks and valleys, you know? <laughs> there, were, there were times that were great. There were times are kind of a jerk, you know? Because it's a little bit more reality, right? But at your funeral, th there's this, this pressure, right? And there's this pressure to, to really, you know, focus on the good things. And I, I get that that's true. But it, it kind of is insidious when it ties in with this idea of the myth of good enough. Because here's what most people think. Just general, you know, consensus. Oh, if there is a heaven and, and God's there then it's for the good people. That's where the good people go. And so, you know, we scramble to, to make sure that we, we fit that category of good. You know, there's this idea that, you know, if you get hit by a bus or attacked by a you know, flock of pigeons or something and you die, then you go and you're kind of outside this big gate 
and there's Peter, who for some reason got a doorman job, and he's there, and you have to convince him in that moment that I'm, I'm, a, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. See, I don't know anybody who says, I'm perfect. I, I don't know anybody who believes that. But I know a ton of people who believe, I am good enough. But see, where's that line? It's kind of this idea that there's these scales, you know, and Peter's got these scales out, and he goes, okay, put all the good things on this side, and put all the bad things on that side, and if, if the good outweighs the bad, you're good enough. If the bad outweighs the good, uh-oh. Right? And, and, and there's this myth out there that it, it's good enough. But here's why we need to ask this question today, because you'll see I'm putting this as a myth. It is not true that you, in and of yourself, can be good enough to earn going to heaven. See, the Bible says that's a complete myth. And yet you may say, well, I'm a really good person, and, I, you know, I've done good things. But the Bible's really clear, good isn't good enough. By the end of today, here's my goal. Every person in the room, every person watching online... I want you to know for sure that you will go to heaven someday. Let's look at what Revelation chapter 7 has to say about this. The future you see shapes the life that you live. Let's take a look into the future here. Revelation chapter 7. It's a beautiful chapter. We've taken a bit of a break from the breaking of the seals, right? We talked a little bit about that last week. We're zooming out, and we're going to get a scene of what is happening in heaven. And there's kind of two phases to this scene. Let's look at the first scene. Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our gods, of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Amen. Amen. We're ready to call the worship team back up? Right. You know, what's this about? Well, God seals his people. That's, that's the first thing that's happening. And by the way, people get kind of freaked out about this whole, uh, you know, mark of the beast thing. It, what you'll find in Revelation is that what Satan does is always a pale imitation of what God is doing. See, before there's a mark of the beast on the forehead of people who follow the beast, there's actually a seal, a mark on the foreheads of the people of God. If you remember the Old Testament, you had some interesting uh, commands for things like to always keep these truths on your mind. In fact, in some more conservative Jewish settings, you'll see people will have a little thing that has a piece of scripture that hangs right in their forehead. It's this idea of, it's an identification, right? 
if you've ever had like some sort of a you know cut or mark on your face or something, you can't hide it. You know, it's an identification. It's really clear, but it's also representing something that's uh, it's it's holistically about you, right? It kind of brands you. It's it's something that's on your mind. It's very visible. These are people who are sealed by God. Now, why are they sealed in the first place? Well. We're in the breaking of the scrolls. Judgment is coming. God is bringing about his kingdom, and it's going to be a tricky time. It's going to be a dangerous time. And so God is sealing those who follow him because God knows that there's trials ahead, but he's going to say, this far, no further because they're my people. Now, a couple things for those of you who love the, uh, the extra credit here. Look at the tribes, the names of the tribes. Sometime, not now, because this will send you down a rabbit hole. Why are those tribes listed? It's not the original 12 tribes you see. There's some changes there. That's, I'll just let you think on that. You can ask about it next week. Right? But 12,000, here's the other thing I'll say about this. God seals his people. Now, is that uh, 144,000, like a very specific? There's some religious groups that will say there's, God has a team and it's kind of his A-listers, and there's 144,000 spots in the team, and if you're really awesome, you make the cut, and um, if you're not, you're just part of the, like, rest of, you know, the rabble in society. I don't really believe that's the case. See, God has said this. He has called Abraham, and he said, you are going to be a blessing. Your offspring is going to be a blessing to the whole world. So God chose the people of Israel as his special people. And God made certain promises to them that God will fulfill. And so we get this first half. Here's these 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, 12,000 times 12. You hear the number 12 in there a whole lot, right? I think it's emblematic to say a complete number from each tribe. Every, every person who is part of the Jewish community who's accepted Jesus Christ is going to be sealed and going to be a part of God's work in the future. All right, so it's this holistic number. All of those who are going to be redeemed from each tribe are going to be sealed, okay? So that's the first thing that we see. Now let's look at phase two here because this gets really interesting. Verse nine, after this I looked and behold a great multitude. Now no longer are we in the bounds of Israel. We're looking at something different here. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, they said this, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we see a great multitude, right? Here's these people that have been redeemed from the various tribes of Israel. But then it's like you turn and there's this sea of people. All different places. All different languages, right? Short, tall, speak quickly, speak slow. You speak this language, you speak that language. All sorts of people from all over the place, and they're worshiping God, and they're bowing down and saying, all glory and might and, and power belongs to our God. And there's this amazing worship that breaks out in heaven. 
Now, here's the interesting thing. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? See, here's the question. John's up here in this heavenly vision. He's seeing this, this culmination of the promises that God has made to Israel start to come true. Right? And he looks over here and he sees it's not just Israel. Actually, the grace of God has, has spread around. And there's, there's people who've responded from all different places. Right? Heaven is not people of a certain denomination. Heaven is not a, a place where it's just people of a certain skin color. Heaven is not just a place where it's people who speak a certain language or have a certain socioeconomic class or so on and so forth. It's, it's people from all over. And one of the heavenly beings, the elders, asks John a question. Who are these people, and where did they come from? Who are these people, and where did they come from? We have it on the screen here for you. Who are these people, and where did they come from? Right, and, and it's kind of this test, right? This test for John. What, what, do, you, what do you see, John? Look at everybody. There's, there's got to be some commonality. It's not race, it's not gender, it's not height, it's not socioeconomics. Well, what is the commonality here? Because it's just, it's just a mass of people, but they all got to heaven. Why did these people get to heaven? The answer may not be as obvious as you think. And, and John kind of punts a little bit here. <laughs> he says, verse 11, I said to him, sir, you know. Which I love that. If you're ever in school, by the way, and the teacher asks you a question, just be like, you know the answer. Why don't, I mean, I know it too, but just so we all know, why don't you say it, you know, this time, right? So he kind of pushes it back. Sir, you know, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of this great tribulation. They've washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Where, who are all these people and where did they come from? They all knew one thing. All these people from all different places, all different tongues, tribes, nations, right? They all knew one thing. Good isn't good enough. Good isn't good enough. See, uh, it, we're told that these are people who came from the tribulation. We'll talk about that in Revelation part 3. We'll zoom in on that a bit more. But for now, it was a really difficult, challenging time. And there were people who died. Some of it were just the natural cause and effects of things like famine and war. And some of it could have been, you know, direct persecution. But there, there are people who died in the great tribulation. But I want you to see, it's not just that they died. They were people who washed their robes. And made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They didn't walk in with white robes. Because they all knew this. That the commonality for each and every person, whether it's from the tribes of Israel, whether it's these great multitudes, they all knew this. That good wasn't good enough. And then they all did one thing. They trusted that Jesus is good enough. Who gets to heaven? Why is it this group? Why, why isn't some other group? How come it's not these people over here. See, there's this myth of, of good, of I'm good enough. All these people, they all know one thing. Good isn't good enough. And then they all did one thing. They trusted that Jesus is good enough. Now, let me take you through a bit of a journey here, because let, let's play around with this question. If you're not convinced, it's okay. You're still seated. Hopefully, you're still tuning in. Let me, let me give some illustration about this. How good is good enough? 
Well, let's think through, right? Let's think through the Bible here and some of the stories. And, and to help me illustrate this, uh, I have a couple things here with me today. The first is um, I've got rat poison, all right? This is um, highly concentrated rat poison. I'm not joking, by the way, so don't come up and, like, test this later. This is, this is rat poison, right? This is supposed to be, I don't know, in a gallon or a quart of water or something. This is very concentrated, all right? It's dangerous. Um, how good is good enough? Let's assume for a moment that this represents your life. And this represents sin. How good is good enough? Well, if you've done just a little bit, you know, I, I'm a pretty good person, I feel like. But, you know, there was that time I did cheat on something. Um, you know, there was that time that I was really, frankly, a jerk to that person. It was just because I was in a bad mood. Um, you know, it, it's not just the stuff that I've done that's wrong. It's the good things that I don't do. I could have helped somebody, and I, you know, just decided to, to walk away. How good is good enough? See, we tend to think and look at this, and we go, well, I don't know. It still looks pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, the stuff looks pretty clear, looks pretty clean, but how good is good enough? Let me illustrate this by, by walking this through just some main figures in, in, through your Bible. Let's talk about Abraham for a moment. Abraham was a compassionate leader. He was a compassionate leader. I, Abraham kind of blows my mind how he, how he treated his wife in a very patriarchal culture, how he treated the people who worked for him in a culture where that really wasn't common. I mean, Abraham was this person who lived with, with a compassionate heart for others. The people who lived around Abraham... They thrived because they were in proximity to a godly individual. I mean, this was the person who was praying for God to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because he was a compassionate leader. I mean, Abraham's a pretty good guy. He, he, he's, you know, tagged as the father of not just one major world religion, more than one. I don't know. That's a pretty good resume, right? I think that's impressive. You know what we also know about Abraham, though? I mean, he struggled with fear. He struggled with people-pleasing. You know, there was a time where he was going into a town, and, and there was a, a strong ruler there who thought his wife was attractive. So he actually pretended like it wasn't his wife, that it was his sister, so that he wouldn't have a conflict. And you go, ooh, I don't know about you, ladies. If you're married to somebody, is that what you want to have happen? You know, like, oh, go ahead. You can take her on a date. Yeah, she's, she's my sister. It's fine. It's cool, you know? Cowardice. Fear. How good is good enough? David. Let's zoom forward to David, another amazing leader that you read in the Bible. David was a defender of the oppressed. I mean, you want to talk about what's a good resume? If you're going to show up to heaven, you're going to pitch a resume before St. Peter there, you know, the doorman. What is good enough? David, he was a defender of the oppressed. And David was this amazing individual as like a teenage boy. He actually goes to fight Goliath. I mean, in, incredible. His, his whole career, right, he's this kind of warrior king who's got this amazing tender heart, and he's kind of like a worship leader in some sense, but he's constantly pushing back against oppression. He's constantly fighting for those who, who cannot fight for themselves. He's willing to risk himself so that those who don't have the power to push back can be defended. I mean, isn't, isn't that like the sort of people we want in our lives? Can you imagine how much better our society would be if we had more people like David? People who are willing to stand up and say, I I'm, gonna, 
I'm going to defend and fight for those who are so disenfranchised from the system or, or they've lost their voice or everything's rigged against them. I'm going to be an advocate. I'm going to be a defender. Isn't that impressive? But see, even David, who was a defender of the oppressed, knew that good wasn't good enough. Do you want to also know what's true about David? David ended up uh, sleeping with Bathsheba, who was in a different, you know, relationship. She was already married. And when it was started to come out, he decided that, you know, I, I can't fess up to this. I'm, it's going to look bad. It's kind of egg in my face sort of stuff. So I'm actually going to have Uriah killed and make it look like it was just, you know, an accident. He was a war hero, and then he gets confronted about the whole thing. I mean, you sit there and you go, wow, you, you slept with someone's wife. And then, and then to, like, cover it up, you end up murdering her husband? See, David was a defender of the oppressed. He did some really amazing things. Most of the Psalms that you read are from a guy who killed somebody else's husband. David was a defender of the oppressed who knew that good wasn't good enough. Let's look at Solomon. Solomon was a world-renowned scholar. Solomon is this kind of amazing individual as a, as a son of David, a future king of Israel. God appears to him. It says, Solomon, you can have whatever you want. I mean, think about that. This is like the moment that we all dream about, <clears throat> you know, where God says, you know what, Mary Ellen, you can have whatever you want. What would you say? What would you ask for? I mean, seriously, what, what would you pick? This is what was crazy about Solomon. As a young man who could be so tempted to say wealth or prestige or a kingdom double the size or a, a lifespan, you know, this much or I want to be 6'2", you know, like he could have picked anything. And you know what he picks? Wisdom. God, would you give me wisdom because I need to shepherd people. I need to be an influence on others. I need to lead this, this country in a way. And, and this amazing, world-renowned scholar, people traveled from other countries to talk to this person. You go, well, that's pretty impressive, right? And because of that wisdom, he ended up getting all this money. But you know what else is true about Solomon? He knew that good wasn't good enough. He started to collect a bunch of wives, a bunch of concubines. Slowly... His heart became colder and colder to the things of God to the point where the smartest, wisest man in the world, by the end of his life, had become so cold and distant from the God who gave him that very wisdom. See, Solomon had to snap to a reality that knows that good isn't good enough. Here's the last example I'm going to give you. Paul was a religious expert. Paul was a religious expert. Now, if you don't remember in the book of, uh, well, you have in the book of Acts, but it's the story of this character whose name is Saul. Now, Saul was a very impressive, he was top of his class, trained by one of the most famous rabbis. Uh, I mean, he got into the prestigious school. Like, he was one of those all-in people, you know, just very passionate, very fervent about the things of God. In fact, so much so that it, it drove him to become a, a persecutor of the Christian church, right? He was the biggest detractor. He was the biggest one who, who was against the church, trying to tear it down. He literally killed people over this thing. That's how passionate he was to defend what he felt like, you know, was representing God. And then all of a sudden, God approaches him. 
And, and, and he has this, this vision. He's got this encounter with God where he just realizes the whole world has been put upside down. And, it, and I've been so wrong about this. I've been zealous about the wrong thing. And so he has this conversion experience and, and his name changes and he reflects on this. And Paul was a religious expert, trained by some of the best, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one of the most strict adherents to, to what the, the religious community had. And Paul knew, the religious expert, that being an expert didn't make him right. And he knew that good wasn't good enough. See, Paul had done so many things in his life. He'd persecuted, he'd fought against, he'd, he'd kicked against the goads. And, and Paul knew as righteous as he thought he was, as religious as he thought he was, it wasn't good enough. Paul says, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament that you read, he says, you know, at the end of my life when I look over things, I sit there and I think, the good things I wish that I would do, and I find myself not doing it. How many of you can relate to that? I know what I should be doing, and yet it's like I wake up every day and there's this struggle, and I go, oh my gosh, another day I've just kind of burned and wasted, and I, I know what I should do, but I struggle. And I know the things that I shouldn't do, and I know it's bad for me, and I know, it, I know it's down that path, and you know what? I still find myself pulling it up. I don't do the things I know I should, and I can't stop doing the things I know I shouldn't. This is Paul at the end of his life. Because even Paul, as a religious expert, knows that good is not good enough. Now, if you're sitting here and thinking this, uh, so wait a minute. All right, so if you have a person who's a compassionate leader, and, and you have a person who, who's this defender of the oppressed, and you have a person who's just not just... They're, they're passionate, they're compassionate, but they're actually just this wise person who, who knows how to navigate life successfully. And, and on top of it all, they know the Bible. They're an expert. They're religious. They're fervent. And if that person shows up to Peter the doorman and they don't get in, if that's not good enough, Look, I, I, don't know, I don't know where you rank yourself in this list, but most of us are not cracking the same comparative levels with Abraham and, and David and Solomon. And if they don't make the cut, what chance do you have? What chance do I have? If a compassionate defender of the oppressed who's wise and an expert in the things of God isn't good enough, who could possibly be good enough? And this brings us back to the myth. How, how good is good enough? Because a lot of people want to go, I don't know. It looks pretty good to me, right? I feel like this looks pretty good. You know, I, I'm maybe not the best, but I'm also not the worst. How good is good enough? Anyone want a drink? See, this is the crazy thing about the gospel, and this is what Revelation 7 really kind of highlights for us. It, it, see, the, the people who are there, you get this question, where did all these people come from? 
How did they make the cut? What's the commonality here? Because it's not language, and it's not race, and it's not gender, and it's not even time period, right? How did these people get here? The answer was, all those people knew one thing. They knew that good wasn't good enough. And, and it's not just they knew that they weren't good enough. They actually trusted that Jesus is good enough. So who goes to heaven? The people who know, we'll show it on the screen here, you need to know that your good isn't good enough. That you sit there and you look at your life and you go, I mean, I, I understand the common like, hey, you're pretty good. No one's perfect, right? But the thing is, the Bible says that God is holy. God is perfect. And if you want to stand before God, you better be perfect. That's the standard. Complete 100% righteousness at all times. And you go, ooh, that's a bar. <laughs> I mean, who can clear that? Who could clear that, that bar? It's not just good enough. you got to be perfect. And you look at your life and go, I mean, by, from the outsides, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty good. But even one drop. You know what happens if you drink this cup? Your liver is going to shut down and stop producing the things that makes your blood clot. And you will die. You go, it's just a couple drops, right? But the Bible's real clear. Any sin, even the most minor thing that for you, minor, you can think of, it separates us from God. And that's why the Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short. Because good isn't good enough. There's a standard God has of perfection. And every person, I don't care if you're as amazing and compassionate as Abraham or you're an expert like Paul, everyone falls short of perfection. And so all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequence of that is separation from God. It's separation for an eternity from God. But how did all these people get to heaven? They knew that good wasn't good enough and they trusted that Jesus good enough. Because here's the other thing the Bible says. When you come to this reality and come to this conclusion, God, I'm not pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm not going to work my way into heaven. There's no amount of stuff I can pile on that scale that's going to outweigh even one drop of poisonous sin in my life. And you got to come and you got to have this posture that says good isn't good enough. God, I, man, I I don't know if I've been trying to impress you. <laughs> I don't know if I've been trying to, you know, work on that list to impress Peter. But I'm coming today to say good isn't good enough. I'm not perfect. And that means I'm not good enough. But here's the amazing truth about the Bible. The Bible says it this way, that knowing that you are not good enough, God actually did something about it. That's why it's called grace, because it is unmerited favor. You did not earn it. You did not achieve it. You, you didn't work your way up to this thing. In fact, it's more than a few drops. We're actually more filled with sin than we're even aware of. And God, in his mercy, said, I know that you can't pay the price for this. I know that you can't drink of this cup. So I'm going to. And so Jesus takes on sin, drinks of this cup, and dies because of it. He takes the punishment, the wrath of God that I deserve and you deserve for falling short. See, God decides to bring it on himself so that you can be offered life 
If you come to this place and you say, good isn't good enough. God, I know I'm not good enough. But I trust that Jesus is good enough. That Jesus came as God incarnate, lived a perfect sinless life, not one drop. And yet, because of love, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should trust that Jesus is good enough, shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the last thing I'll say. The Bible says it like this. That whenever Jesus comes into your life, whenever you trust that your good isn't good enough and that Jesus is good enough, it's not just that your sin is taken away. Right? Sometimes that's a myth we get into, right? That, well, he takes away my sin, but, but now it's up to me to fill that cup up with pure water, right? But the Bible actually points it this way, that God not only takes all of the bad, the sin from our lives, but he actually fills it with something good. That because of Jesus, the unmerited favor, your life is filled with good things. Every spiritual blessing. And when God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see the sin. God knows it. But he actually sees the work of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering. And he looks and he says, that person, all the good that Jesus deserves, because Jesus is good enough. I'm going to give to you. And you will be one of those people who stand in heaven singing the praises of God. Because the people who go to heaven know this. That good isn't good enough. And they trust that Jesus is good enough. As the worship team comes up, let me finish reading this section here. The very end of Revelation chapter 7. This is verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. And he will guide them into springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Here's a question for you. Why are they crying? Why are they crying? I thought there was no, no tears in heaven, right? Isn't there a song about that? <laughs> Canonical, right? I thought there were no tears in heaven. I don't know for sure, but let me take a stab at it. I think it's a mix of things. I think they look at the beauty of what God has done, and it's overwhelming. I think they look back at life and, and they see the, the harm and the hurt and the things that shouldn't have been because of sin. And I, I think it breaks their heart a bit. I, I think they, they look at their life and they look at the ways in which they didn't see or live out or live up to what God had called them to. And I think that they look at the very face of the Lamb and see the incredible love that was so loving and he came and he died. And, and, and I think of people who sit there and go, God, I, I'm not good enough. And I cannot believe, I cannot believe I'm here in this moment. Friends, you can know today whether you're going to be there or not. If you've never made this decision, let me invite you to. 
to actually come to this place. You say, God, I may not have all the right words. I may not know what all this means, but here's at least what I do know and believe. God, I believe that my good isn't good enough. But I'm trusting. I'm trusting that Jesus is good enough. And when you make that decision, friends, your life is changed. And all the bad that Jesus took upon himself is wiped away. And the good, the life, the beauty, the joy of Jesus floods into your life. And you'll never be the same for it. If you haven't made that decision, don't miss out. Make it today. For those of you who do know Jesus, I'll just say this. Those who remember that they've received incredible grace are those who show incredible grace to a world that doesn't deserve it. Father in heaven today, God, I pray. I pray for people to respond. I pray for the people who don't know you. Father, may they come to know you today. May they know and be a part of that chorus in heaven. God, when one day you'll wipe away our tears because of the beauty of what is and because of the path that which we took to get there, God, would you be honored today. For those of us who do know you, God, may we be overwhelmed by grace. And may that give us the courage to offer the same gift to the world around us, to be a testimony of you and your life. For we ask this in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit.